Welcome to the 236th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Don Breitkreitz uses the following philosophy to guide the way she and her husband Grant farm in southwestern Minnesota. Mother Nature is self-regulating, self-healing, and self-organizing. Since they launched their crop and livestock farm in 1997 on hilly land along the Minnesota River, that mantra has helped the bright crisis roll with the punches and build resiliency in the face of extreme weather, unpredictable markets, expensive input prices, and a farming community that isn't always understanding of anyone who steps away from the typical corn bean monocultural machine. At the core of everything the Bright Kreitzes do is soil health. They've been growing cover crops for 20 years and no-tilling for around 10. They also raise their 180-cow beef herd by rotationally grazing permanent pastures as well as cover crops. All of these efforts have combined to build organic matter in fields that had been depleted by row cropping and overgrazing in the past. Through the years, the farmers have become convinced that there's a direct connection between healthier soil and a healthy bank account. For example, their animal stocking capacity has gone up significantly, and their ability to work the land in all kinds of weather has increased. The economic value of healthier soil has become particularly clear in recent growing seasons, as record-breaking rains make it difficult for their neighbors to raise a profitable row crop on conventionally managed land. As they've watched the soils on their Stony Creek farm come back to life, Don and Grant have been quite willing to share their successes as well as failures with other farmers. They regularly host Soil Health Academy schools, which feature such giants in the field as Ray Archuleta, Gabe Brown, and Alan Williams. And their farm has also welcomed university researchers and students who are interested in studying how having living roots in the ground 365 days a year builds carbon while helping manage water and runoff. The return of wildlife to their working landscape has also caught the attention of the public, as well as ecologists. Don and Grant recently gave a presentation on linking farm finances with soil health during a Land Stewardship Project Soil Builders Workshop. This podcast features excerpts from that talk. Grant began the talk by outlining why managed rotational grazing is such a key part of their system. So why managed grazing? As we learn this, as I learn this, obviously to produce more grass. But what it really comes down to is we're fixing soil health. We're building carbon, organic matter, fixing what's going on underneath that grass plant. At one time we called it mob grazing, now it's, we call it managed intensive grazing, we managed adaptive grazing, whatever the term is. Just move the cows. <laughs> and there's all kinds of different people out there that can help you with this. Even if you're just in a simple NRCS contract with Equip where you move every three to five days, it's going to show benefits. So our grazing system mimics nature. And why do we do that? We're putting carbon back to the soil, we're putting cover back on the soil. This, what you see in this picture, this is our fertility program. This is our herbicide program. This is our protection for the soil. This has changed soil health on our farm immensely to the point that on our home farm, we're at, we have quadrupled the carrying capacity on our farm. We originally started out with 58 cows, grazing three and a half months. We added 42 acres of improved grasses and stuff that should have never been farmed. And we, we can now run 120 pairs for six months. A lot of the pasture land we have is native native prairie, never had a plow to it. When we started changing our grazing systems, we had three or four species of grass, no forbs, no legumes, nothing out there. As we did the first NRCS contract, we immediately noticed that we had doubled our grazing capacity on that piece of land. So how can we push it faster, push it farther? That's where the managed adaptive grazing comes in. 
This particular pasture, the last time somebody counted that knows more than I do, there was 30 different species plus out there. And we have not seeded a thing, we have not drilled anything, we have not put anything in the mineral. It's all come back through grazing management. This particular pasture when Dawn and I started, was it was set stocked. The grass grew this tall if we left it alone all year. Four to six inch growth. In that earlier picture you saw, now we grow grass to the top of the cow's backs. And we've done that not only on this pasture, but on improved grasslands all through grazing. And the key to it is rest. Some of our roughest and toughest native pastures, um, these are rented away from our farm. When we initially approached this producer, this landowner, he said, yeah, you can run cows there if you build the fence. So we built the fence. We could initially run 18 cow-calf pairs down there for about four months. We have removed some cedar trees, but through grazing management, we now run 55 to 58 cow-calf pairs down there for five months. Just by going through the soil, the principles of soil, and giving plenty of rest and recovery. Uh, this is a piece of ground that we used to uh roll crop and we would like three out of five years we'd collect crop insurance on this ground. We decided to try to kind of set it aside for a while and we uh, planted it to alfalfa and then as we were aging out of the alfalfa the grasses were starting to come and we kind of looked at each other and said well let's turn it into the pasture because it's light ground it's got rocks on it and so we decided to let the cows start grazing that and it was pretty heavy alfalfa yet and the neighbors thought we were going to kill our cows because we we're going to graze alfalfa and all that happy stuff and and but that didn't happen and so what you're seeing here is what that's developed without any added seed like he was talking before the latent seed bank along with the management and the cows brought the health of that soil back to be able to produce pasture like this. This is honestly the most abused piece of ground that we have on the farm, but it's the most productive and it takes our abuse. We just have to manage it carefully and adjust for the disruptions that we that we do to it. It's nice and flat and um, I don't know, well drained. So we can take pears out there and calve in the springtime and then we'll let it rest and, and come back in the fall and it'll have built itself back up again. By changing our grazing operation, it all comes down to diversity of what we've done. I mean, we alter our stock densities all the time. We've done 10,000 pounds, we've done 150, we've done 500,000 pounds per day. Initially, we started out just making five acre paddocks. Now, we look at the grass, we can calculate what's out there, and we adjust accordingly. So this is something that Ray Archuleta had to, to really keep hounding on us about, and it's something that, at the time that we took this picture, we didn't understand. I mean, we were seeing it, but we didn't understand it. And this is something you're gonna see throughout our presentation. Mother Nature is self-regulating, self-healing, and self-organizing. And through proper management, you're gonna see it. And it, the way you see it is changing the way you look at your operation. Well, we now have five springs in our farm that my dad has been on this farm since he was a kid that have never been there. And to explain those springs, what's happening is we're holding and retaining the water on the top of our pastures on, and even our crop fields above these pastures. We're getting that water in and it's slowly moving through the soil profile. And our swamps and bogs that we never used to be able to graze are now productive pasture that we graze pretty regularly unless we get 10 inches of rain at a time. But they do dry out and the, and the neat part is, is these springs are showing up in different places. And what we're seeing where these springs are developing in these hillsides is all kinds of different species of forbs, grasses. Everything a cow needs is developing where these springs are coming. So from all the changes we've made, obviously we've saved some labor. We've changed our calving date immensely. Feed savings because we're producing so much more. 
vet cost savings. All the plants that are growing in a healthy soil become healthy to the livestock that they're grazing across also. The other part of it that we never thought we would see is, is healing the creek banks. There was a lot of pressure on us to fence our creek banks out because we've got 10 creeks that run through our pasture land. And we said, no, we'll change the way we graze, we can fix these. And we eventually got there. All of our creek banks, we got the flat bottoms with grass growing through them, tall vegetation in them all the time. We still grazed them, we still got production out of them. We had increased our water infiltration capacities on our on our pasture lands to 8 to 12 to some places 30 inches per hour. Same on our cropland. So it comes down to the soil health principles that we abide by. Obviously keep the soil covered all the time, whether it's in our grazing environment or our cropping environment. Minimize the disturbance, that's why we've been 10 years in no-till. Increase the diversity, we'll get into that with the cover crops, the interseeding. Keep living roots in the soil at all times. Integrate livestock obviously works great for us because we do have a cow herd. And the biggest one I never thought of in talking to people about this is context. Every single one of you has to take these principles and use them in your own context, on your own farm, the way you feel comfortable, at the time you feel comfortable. Whatever the parameter is, it's all about context. You, you can leave here and Tom and Myron and us can tell you you got to cover crop every acre. Well, if you're not comfortable with it, don't do it. It's not in your context. You have got to be comfortable with everything that's going on here to make all the principles work properly. This is the other part of it. Fixing soil biology for profitability should be our number one resource concern, which gets to a lot of what was brought up here. Yes, we have to answer to a banker. Yes, we have to answer to a landlord. But at the end, the end goal should be increasing our profitability on our farms. This really helped us out when we started looking at it as profit per acre instead of just production, 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 especially on our green, our green land. When we could see the reductions from what we were doing with covered crops or no-till and putting it in a profit dollars per acre is when things change for us. So obviously over the years, ours has changed. It's soil on the top left is ours. The bottom right is right across the fence. I use my neighbors as examples a lot because there are very few doing what we're doing. So you can see the difference there. But just to give you a little idea of the difference in it, our soils have room to hold air, water, nutrients. Our neighbor's soils are tight, compacted. Every tillage pass just makes it worse. I never thought we could do it. We had seen it on our pasture lands, the increase in organic matter, carbon. On our tillable lands, I, I really struggled to think that I would ever see a change. I mean, I'm not that old, but I knew it would take time. <clears throat> on one of our poorest pieces of land, we really concentrated on it heavily with cover crops. Um, there was some manure spread on there, but it's been no-tilled the longest. And we've changed that by 3% organic matter in a short period of time. You know, you, you can look at this, every percent of organic matter, 16,000, 24,000 gallons of water. Just imagine what we did to that, and it's sand. I was always told you cannot build carbon in sand. Sand just eats carbon. Well, if you feed it the right things, you can, you can build organic matter into sand. On our farm as a whole, we're up about 2.5% of organic matter over the years. The current farming model tells us to kill, and it's everything, bacteria, fungus, insects, diversity. And I hate to say it, but we as agricultural producers, a lot of what we take back to our farms, in fact, I've looked, at, looked this up, a lot of what we take back to our farms is what our input suppliers tell us to do. And what do our input suppliers tell us to do? That we need to get rid of bacteria, fungus, we have to get rid of insects, and we have to get rid of diversity. You know, every day there's a new product coming out to take care of all this stuff. 
as we changed our operation, and it takes time to change it, we didn't need these things to grow crops anymore. You know, when soils are left bare, water evaporates, carbon oxidizes, and microorganisms die. That's without biology, soil is simply geology. And so much of what, if we follow our input suppliers, so much of what they're telling us is that that soil is just a medium to grow a plant. We'll sell you everything else you need. It's not that way. We've proven it. Others in this room have proven it. It's not just a medium to grow a plant. It's a living, breathing part of the earth we live in, and we need to foster that. We need to promote that. We run at least a three-crop rotation. So on the left would have been a small grain crop the year before. This particular was probably spring wheat, followed by cover crop that we graze the cattle across with species in there to green up the next spring so we can plant grain. On the right, we didn't get it planted that year. We actually wintered some cows out there, which should have been good for the soil by having all the manure there. On the left was properly grazed, what we call properly grazed for the winter. They were on three to four day breaks. We left 40 to 60% of the residue out there. On the right was basically what you'd call feedlot cows that all turned black, our soybean residue disappeared. There was no cover crop. This is important because it comes back to keeping the soil covered at all times. On the left, we had about 25 to 30 bushels acre better corn than on the right. And part of it is because of soil temperatures. And this comes back to, I don't care if it's grazing, cropland, anything, any of the soils, it comes back to the temperatures and the cover that's on these soils. Soils at 70 degrees, they're just like us as human beings. They function and work the best at 70 degrees. Anything over that, we all get uncomfortable. Work quality and quantity will decrease. You know, at 100 degree soil temps, we're at 15% of moisture used for growth. 85% of moisture is lost in evaporation and transpiration. And when I saw this presented the first time, I thought 130 degrees, 100% of our moisture is lost through evaporation and transpiration. 140 degrees, soil microbes die. The main reason we're doing all these cover crops and diversity on the land. I didn't think we could see 130 degree temperatures. Obviously this year in Minnesota, you couldn't, but we have recorded them many times on our neighbor's land and even on our own. So it happens. We have to be cognizant of keeping that soil covered all the time. To till or not to till, these are my neighbors. I got to use them again. The guy on the right, moldboard plows his corn stalks. He chisel plows his soybean ground. The guy on the left, no tilled one year. The guy on the right got 40% of his beans harvested. The guy on the left harvested 100% after 2.9 inches more rain than the guy on the right. This is what Don and I consistently see in our land. We got a young neighbor we farm with. We've harvested all of the crops we've planted the last four seasons, which have been a bear in our area to get harvested without ever sinking a combine, except I have to admit we got stuck crossing a grass waterway once. Otherwise, we have not buried equipment. Our neighbors can lay tile lines in the ruts that they're leaving. We have to get carbon back into the soil so it can function with all the parts I said. And I'll admit, we've got tile on our farm. There is no place on our farm that I would ever even dream about pattern tiling. Because of the principles that we followed, we can, we can get through the, yeah, there's places we fight some mud. You know, this spring we had water that was seeping out of our neighbor's land onto ours. Yeah, it would have been nice to have a tile line there, but it was just an acre or two that we didn't get planted. The picture before this of our neighbors right beside us, like I say, we had 40% prevent plant in our region, in our area. We planted every acre we farmed this year, including our river bottom land, which I didn't think we'd ever get done, but we planted every single acre and yet our neighbors that are pattern tiled can't get it done. So Grant has a, well, we have a friend, um, family friend that uh, now calls himself an agronomist. We asked him in your visits, you know, with your other, with the, your producers, 
Can you please ask them what keeps them from, you know, considering improving their soils or, you know, planting cover crops, going to no-till or whatever? And these were, I mean, you can read them. These were a lot of them. Um, but we hear this everywhere we go. Yeah, but this won't work on our land. You don't understand. You don't understand. This won't work. It can't work. And we've, we're seeing it. We're hearing reports from all around the world. It can work. Cover crops steal nutrients from cash crops. Yeah, if you plant the incorrect ones, but you have to do, you know, you have to do your, your research and talk to a person that knows what they're doing. Regenerative agriculture is just another fad. That's one of our favorites. We pray to God that it's not a fad. We just, we see so many positive changes to the land and just to the overall health of the whole system. Not only the soils, the plants, to us, to the animals, um, it's, it's so important. The fingers keep getting pointed back and forth with the urban areas and the agricultural areas. We feel like it's everybody's responsibility to take on the role of, of fixing things. It's, this is, yes, happening in agriculture, but it's also happen, happening in the cities and towns um, with over-application of you know, fertilizers and chemicals and, and things like that. But these cover crops can change soil profiles immensely. Dawn and I farm on some very hilly land. In fact, in the 85 Farm Bill, a lot of our land was classified as hell land in that classification. So you know from all the years of doing tillage since the prairies broke, our hills were clay colored going over the top. We no longer have clay on our hills. We have six to eight inches of black topsoil. This soil pit was digging where the county had dug where the county had rebladed our road. They had taken soil out of here. And so I think it was in 11 or 12 years of, we, we cover crop this every single year. We did no deep tillage to it. In fact, we didn't take a crop off of it. We just, we just kept putting cover crops on it to fix what the road damage had done. In the meantime, our neighbors, obviously on the same mile, were ripping it, deep, ripping deeper. And ours responded the fastest, but you can see we've got just about 17 inches of black topsoil there. You know when the road company laid that back in there, there was clay in there. In fact, Alan Williams found a big pocket of gravel down about 8 inches, and that gravel was black. That's what cover crops, roots, no-till can do for soil. I always questioned when I walked into the NRCS office and saw that poster, it takes 1,000 years to build an inch of topsoil. Bullshit. We can, we, can, we can fix what we've done quickly. Okay, there's a couple stories that go with this um, slide. On the, on the right, well, on the left, I mean, obviously, that's, that's what we're looking for. We, um, having a, a growing plant there, growing roots there all the time, um, it, it improves the infiltration and, and improves the absorption. And also, it um, protects those plants. If the raindrop can't get to that black soil and, and splash up on the plant, you shouldn't have as many disease issues on your plants as you might have if you just have black soil besides those, beside those plants. Cover crops following wheat or any grain, this has gotten to be one of our favorite things and we've kind of quit growing spring. We're probably going to be growing some spring oats this year. This is what really changed our farm around was having that third crop in the rotation which was always there but figuring out cover crops and what we could fix. My neighbors with cattle say they can't afford to have a small grain crop. I say you cannot, you can not afford to have a small grain crop, especially with livestock. You know, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but we're seeding another crop. We'll spend some pretty significant dollars on that crop if, if we're getting in on time, if we're getting in in early August. 
And through grazing, we can realize about $150 an acre. Uh, I think that was figured at $85 a ton hay in the records of our cows going across there. So it's, it's our data. And then we take the straw home and use it in the winter for the feedlots if we need it, which we shouldn't anymore. But So initially, to our banker, we can show $127 an acre net gain by using cover crops and the cows. But this is the part I was always missing, and this is the part that comes back to some of these questions, is we have to look at this long term. We're putting carbon back in the soil, so at some point in time, we gotta get a payback for it. So after that cover crop that was in the previous picture, we'll, we'll be at least $40 an acre less in fertilizer to grow a corn crop, $20 an acre in herbicide, that's even getting more than that. And the other part is, is we don't have to purchase traded seeds anymore because we don't need that technology to protect the corn plant anymore. And through seeing Jonathan Lundgren a couple years ago, I had no idea the neonicotinoid deal. I kind of chose to ignore it. But two years ago, we planted half of our farm with non-treated corn. Last year, we planted 100% of our corn acres with non-treated corn. All our corn came up. It works. Just got to break the pest cycles. So getting that number from my local seed company, who's an independent dealer right up the river from me, he just said that his suppliers charge him about $53 an acre. So you add all those together, you got $239 an acre gain by having a small grain crop in there. You know, it might not be for everybody, but if you got livestock, it's definitely something to look at. As Don and I started learning this, we didn't know how to monitor it. So the one thing we found was the earthworm. The things that bother earthworms are plowing, monocultures, fertilizers, fungicides, herbicides, soil compaction. We had no idea how important these earthworms are. When we're planting corn, it's nothing to dig out 8 to 12 earthworms on 30,000 plant spacings. You know, this is something we were, all, we were all pulling Haney tests this spring. This would be a clot of soil we turned over where we're planting corn. That's how many earthworms we see. You know, poor soils are at 250,000 earthworms per acre or less. Good soils are a million plus. It all comes to nutrient cycling and what those earthworms can do with you, along with all the other biology we don't see. It doesn't matter what it is, but it's tillage and it's corn or corn and soybeans. You know, earthworm populations down here at 70 to 230,000. Here's us, but add in cover crops. We're no-till corn soybean with grain crop in there, and we're at a million plus earthworms per acre. I didn't think we'd ever get there. We've gotten there. Our pasture lands are over, at a, over a million earthworms per acre. Why is this important? It's a combination of everything, but earthworms on our farm, <clears throat> obviously it's, their castings are 26% carbon, but, but for us, one of the big things was calcium. We were applying five tons of the acre of lime. We were applying 10 tons of the acre of lime every other year, trying to get our pH levels up in our soil 20 years ago. We didn't take soil tests for quite a while in between there. All the soil tests we've taken as of recently, I got to back up here. We were at 5.8 to 6.3 pH when, we when Dawn and I took over the farm. All the soil samples we sent in this spring were at 6.8 to 7.0. We haven't spread lime for 15 years. How'd that happen? Right there, them buggers are pumping. They're fixing the soil along with everything else in there. The, the cover crop roots, everything is, is balancing the soil out. Um, corn comparisons. When you, use, when you use my neighbor's numbers and he shares them with me and compare our numbers, you get down to, it's about profit per acre, which relates to cost per bushel. At the bottom here, in this particular year, we were producing a bushel of corn for $2.05 a bushel. Our neighbor's at two fifty-eight, And it goes back to what I said about the third crop in there, being able to reduce the seed, the herbicide, the fertilizer, all of those things. And the one thing that I never imagined as a livestock producer was stuff that, well, we can measure it, but nobody pays, it for, pays us for it, 
is the increase in proteins in our feeds. Our corn, our shell corn is testing 10% plus in crude protein. Consulting nutritionist that deals with my neighbors, they're at six to 6.8% protein. How do you make cover crops pay? If you got a cow herd and you're in trouble, you're out of feed, you graze this twice with a set of cows that are calving until your grass is ready to go to and then you plant soybeans and you harvest soybeans the same as the neighbors. Sad to say, but what Mother Nature's been doing to Dawn and I lately, it's been something we've had to do because our grasses aren't coming quick enough in the spring. These cover crops, time, fixing the soil health, it all pays long-term benefits. This is installing cover crop into this. This was a project we did trying to show that we could make more money with livestock on it than growing corn and soybeans. This is just a little background of it. Oats, peas, and barley planted on there, harvested early, and then 14 species cover crop seeded afterwards. We spent 37 bucks an acre on the cover crop. We ended up putting gain on the calves for 46 cents a pound of gain, which I could not do in my feedlot. So we get to the full disclosure part. There's cost savings, obviously, but planning, planning, planning. But we, we've been caught so many times on this, but I'll just give you one simple one, is we used to grow spring seed wheat for a local seed company. Our entire wheat crop got rejected because we had some overwintering cover crops in the mix that made it that I missed. We didn't hit them with the spray. They showed up in the wheat. Entire wheat crop was rejected as seed. Cost us a pretty penny, so you gotta plan what you're doing years in advance. Improved soil health, Mother Nature the last four years has just been nasty trying to get the covers in and established. Obviously less machinery needed, but different machinery for interseeding and no-tilling. It's out there, build it. Less chemicals used, but chemical selection is key. You have got to, you have got to look back at your chemical history and make sure that the input supplier selling you that chemical understands that you want to interseed or you want to plant a cover crop after that application and the time window. So many of them will say, well, it's safe for cover crops, but they're thinking way in the fall and, and you just go out and interseed a $15 mix in the corn and nothing comes. So that's key. Less technology, I covered that. Conventional seed availability, getting more and more all the time. And building your soil health network is a benefit. The challenges with that is the peer pressure that comes. Like I said, as I started out here, you're looking to change things. You're admitting to different things. It all comes to mind. If you go to the coffee shop and all your neighbors are there and they're not thinking about changing that peer pressure will wear on you. I'm actually working with a neighbor that I went to church with for 25 years and he decided he's gonna change. He's a pioneer seed salesman. In September, I was up there, took soil samples. He was all set, gung-ho, ready to go. After nine weeks of selling pioneer seed, I gotta reprogram him. Just completely got to start from scratch again. After sitting and listening to the, all the farmers that he was selling seed to, his mind went to 100% doubt that he'd ever get a dime out of that cereal rye crop, that he'll ever get a benefit out of it. So it's it's all about who we associate with, and, and you got to keep your mind going the right way. We struggle with um, almost daily. If you want to make small changes, change how you do things. But if you want to make major changes, change how you see things. And I kind of put it in that the filter that we look at things, at, at, at each piece of ground, at each crop, um, at our cows, the whole nine yards, we are always kind of almost taught or raised to look for the negative. And in looking for the negative, everything that you do seems to just be wrong. Oh, you know, you, you start doubting what you did. But every time Gabe and Ray come to our farm and we say, yeah, but look at that. And they'll say, yeah, but look at this. Look at the positive things. Look for the positive things. And when you change how you actually see things, it makes your life so much flow so much better. And it kind of gets you out of bed in the morning, especially on, with weather like we've had these past four years. And this is one of our, our 
you know, key benefits is, and one of our goals, we want to have clean water. We want the people down in Louisiana not to be angry with us anymore. We want our animals to have clean water to drink. We want our farm to have, you know, healthy, a healthy system. And so we went through the process of, of getting the Ag Water Quality Certification, um, and we're con that's constantly a goal for us. Ian Mitchell Innes told me this a long time ago, if you build it, they will come, and holy crap, they will come. I mean, the wildlife we see on our farm, I never thought it would come back to what it is, but I mean, we've got endangered species there that we don't tell anybody about. The birds that have come back, ask the animals and they will teach you. Ask the birds of the sky and they will tell you. Speak to the earth and it will instruct you. This is all part about getting back to what the way it was designed and doing the, the way it was designed and we can still produce crops doing that. And don't forget about the insects. You know, Jonathan Lundgren says, no bees, no plants, no plants, no people. It's unbelievable the amount of insects that we see on our farm. Um, in soybeans, we have not sprayed for soybean aphids for six years. Even though right across the fence, the neighbors have to. We've got enough beneficial insects in there taking care of our problems. If we're going to change agriculture, it's all about education. Um, we had to travel to Burlington County, North Dakota all the time to get our education. Now, there's groups. I mean, there's groups around here. There's, there's groups everywhere. NRCS has come a long way to helping us. SWCDs have come a long way to help us. So every spring, right, the only few days we can plant corn, Nick Jaleski brings his soils team out from the University of Minnesota. This is one of our yellow clay hills that now has eight inches of black topsoil on it. You want to blow some kids' minds, bring them out to that. how to build soil health profitably, check out LSP's Soil Builders page at landstewardshipproject.org. For information on the Soil Health Academy schools hosted by Stony Creek Farm as well as other operations, see soilhealthacademy.org. Also, LSP did a podcast interview with Don and Grant Breitkreitz earlier in their farming career. It's episode 132. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.